point number two, 5 2, 40, 30. Nadal serves out wide, steps inside the baseline, now retreats, and the Vamos was from Nadal because the ball lands long from Stefanos Sitsipas. And 40 minutes with slight interruptions from rain. The sun is now shining, and the king of clay moves to 45 straight sets on the surface. Here's a set away from his 11th Barcelona title, 6 2. Nadal still back by the line judges. If he sat back a bit, he'd be in the chair. Now runs around the back and hits four, and the line judge ran out of the way. The backhand flick cross court. Championship point Nadal goes big forehand down the line. Nadal steps in on a big backhand through the centre of the court. The backhand flick from Sitspass pushes Nadal back into a spinning forehand cross court onto the line. Backhand flick into there, and there it is. Arms aloft. Rafa Nadal is champion in Barcelona once again. That is title number 11 in Barcelona on the piece to Rafa Nadal. His 46th straight set on clay and his 55th title on this surface. Your champion once again in Barcelona, Rafa Nadal, who defeats Stefano Sitspas in straight set 6-2-6-1. Rafa, congratulations. Another dominant performance to win yet another Barcelona title. Was that your best performance of the week? Uh, yesterday and today was my two best matches. No? Uh, very happy for the victory, of course, against a very difficult opponent like like Sitspas. Uh, he has uh, an amazing future, I think. But it was a, was a great final. No? Very happy to achieve the, the 11th title here. means a lot for me. No? So just uh, enjoy the whole week. Great support of the crowd. Just can say thank you very much, everybody. And winning 11 titles at the same tournament is something quite difficult to comprehend. Can you give us an idea of the hard work you need to put in for that? Yeah, difficult to describe. No? Uh, something uh, amazing, uh, very difficult to, to imagine winning 11 Monte Carlos, 11 Barcelonas. So uh, just enjoying every week and the fact that I'm playing in a tournament that I really love so much and means a lot to me and having fun and playing at home is always a special. And you've got a short period off now before Madrid. How confident are you that you can continue this great run? I don't know. No, I just it's the moment to enjoy about uh, this victory. Uh, it's not happening every day, so uh, it's a moment to enjoy. And next week we're going to start thinking about Madrid. That is another important event for me. The King of Clay has once again reigned supreme in Barcelona with title number 11, and his first on the court named after him, all without dropping a set, making it 46 straight sets on the surface that he has come to call his own. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, and a little bit like last week when following Monte. Carlo, what do you say that hasn't already been said about Rafa Nadal on this service? But like last week, we're going to find some words as we look back on a perfect week in Barcelona for the world number one. And alongside myself, Gigi Salmon, I'm very happy to say, is Naomi Cavade. And Naomi, I, I had this with Arvin Palmer last week following Nadal's win over Kena Shakuri. And I said, what is there left to say about Nadal? And Arvin was like, I'm a little bit on the spot because everything has been said. Can you think of anything new? to add to what's already been said about a man who has such utter dominance on one surface. Not really, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. To, it, look, it's tough to describe what he's doing. I, I think. I mean, there are some new things to maybe talk about. Is that he's actually stretching even further away from the field. Those players that were maybe bridging the gap aren't there anymore, or they're out of form. They're either injured, coming back from injury, or not playing their best tennis. We're thinking about teams not necessarily playing as well. Djokovic, Murray have had their injury struggles, Vavrinka as well. Anybody that could really challenge him on the clay uh, just isn't at the right level to do so. So he is stretching away. The golf is getting bigger, which is just extraordinary. It was absolutely colossal to begin with. Um, how anybody can try and track him down and, and get hold of him is, is just uh, is a mystery. I mean, the gap is, is getting wider.
Some of the numbers following Nadal's 6-2-6-1 win against Stefanos Tsitsipas that took an hour and 18 minutes. And a few of those minutes were some rain delays early on. Nadal remains world number one. It was his 11th Barcelona title, his 77th career title. 55 of them have come on clay. 46 straight sets on this surface. He has a 58-3 record in Barcelona. 401 tour-level match wins on clay now. And his clay court winning streak has been stretched to 19 matches. It's, it's phenomenal. And when we talk about this, and we talked about this ahead of the final in terms of what does Tsitsipas have to do, maybe not to beat him, just to sort of make a little dent. And the difficult thing, even if you sort your game plan out and physically you're there, mentally it is such a hurdle to get to grips with who you're looking at down the other end of the court. Oh, he wins most matches before he's gone on the court. I mean, playing Nadal in the final on clay, I mean, the task just could not be any tougher. I mean, it just, it couldn't be. And and I think with Nadal as well, he is just so utterly ruthless. He would happily not allow you to win a point if he could. He is trying 100% for each point and he's winning very, very comfortably. I mean, I just don't think he's really looked pushed or phased at all through this clay court season. I can't see who's going to be the player to be able to do that. I mean, we're just talking about players maybe winning a set, maybe pushing him to a tie break even. That would be a huge achievement. No one's managed to do that so far this season. I mean, that would be worth talking about, which is just how extraordinary it is. He is stretching away. He's not even looking over his shoulder. He's heading off into the sunset, picking up as many titles as he wants. <laughs> no one can do anything. All anyone can do is, is look, watch, applaud, and then figure out how to win a different tournament where he's not playing. <laughs> we talk about often how do you beat Nadal and Clay? Something you said during the final was, was really interesting when we were trying to look at why is he so good on the surface? And you said because he just embraces it completely. He gives everything to the clay. He's not scared of, of anything. When he steps on that surface, he's completely one with the clay. Yeah, he totally understands the surface through and through. He will understand the nuances between the different surfaces he plays on because clay varies a lot, um, you know, at each different event, the conditions. Nothing in his game fights against the clay. Everything works with it. It, it, it is a perfect um, complement to the surface. The, the surface is al it's almost like the court is on his side. It's helping the ball go, oh, you want us to, you want the court to throw it up even higher? Right, we'll do that. And then the sun comes out and it goes even higher again and it's dry conditions. It, you know, he, as you say, he just, he fully embraces the surface. He's tailored and, and, and perfected his game around every element. He's looked to see how can I make the court work for me? And then he's adapted and developed his game in that way, much like Roger Federer on the grass, it must be said. Um, he's always played, grown up on faster surfaces and has done a very similar thing. But, but with, with Rafa, just everything looks so easy. And I, I don't think I can name another player, even a lot of the, the clay court grinders out there, they, there's still an element of fight through the clay, whereas, um, you know, Nadal, he fights, but all of that fight is directed straight at his opponent. It's not directed on the conditions. It's not directed at the surface in any way. Every drop is coming down your way, and it's pretty daunting. But it's interesting that he can be like that on one surface, but still have been as successful as he has been on all the other surfaces. I mentioned that it's 77 career titles now, 55 of those on clay, which means the others have not been on the clay. He's he's won the biggest titles there are, whereas you look at other players and people are talking about Dominic Team, the, well, 
at the end of last year, we were saying the successor to Nadal on clay, but this year so far maybe down to the injury he's had not going so well for team. But people look at team on other surfaces and they're like, he hasn't adapted his game. He's still playing a clay court match on a, on a grass or a hard court. But the one thing Nadal's been able to do is embrace the surface so fully, yet be able to be equally successful to a degree on the other surfaces. And it, it shows his mindset because he's worked it out. He worked out how to play on grass and how to adapt his game to suit the surface and not fight it so much. There are elements of fight with the surface when he plays on grass, but he, he made changes and he worked at it year on year. He got closer and closer and closer until he won Wimbledon. And that was a, a huge deal for him. Grass is the toughest surface for him to play on. Um, what is so impressive is that when you think of all of the most dominant players throughout the years, they have all ultimately been fast court players who have managed to win on the clay. Um, none of them, I mean, as I say, you're thinking of Sampras or you know, Federer, any, any name that you can really think of, to have somebody who's such an out and out clay courter to have won 10 Roland Garros, all of the tournaments on clay, he's also won. Wimbledon and US Open and Australian Open and not just a one-off, multiple times. You know, he can play on any surface and he plays differently on each surface. Um, and it just shows how meticulously he respects the surface and he he knows that it can help him and he and he works out those ways to do it and then he will maximise it. Whereas so many players just walk onto a court and play their own game and that's not necessarily the most efficient, the most effective or really the most positive way to go about it. There's an element of okay he's not going to serve and volley if you told him that serve and volleying is going to win him Wimbledon you know there's an element of staying within your game style but there are so many minor adjustments you can make that I think a lot of people don't necessarily see um, but just how he's shaped his game around a clay court um, you know he is the best on the clay that, that there's ever been. Why haven't people figured out on a more regular basis how to tackle Nadal on clay because they know what he's going to do. Is it because he just executes it to such a level that whatever you do, you can't get past him? Well, I think they're just they're, there's no breather, there's no let up, there, there are no gaps. I mean, he, his game style. I mean, I mean, you know, he he may have a wobble for a few points where you know he might just make a few unforced errors, but he very often comes out of the game. He might play a bad set, as we saw this week when he played against uh, Klijan. He nearly lost a set, but he didn't. And that was one of the worst sets he's played in the, in the entire season. Um, you know, he just, his competitiveness and his his will to rise to the challenge. I think he loves it when his opponents play well. He, you know, he says, all right, come on then. He loves it when they take the lead. He he challenges himself relentlessly, um, you know, and, and I always remember a quote he said many years ago. He said, people get me wrong. They, I'm, I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly, but he said, people get me wrong. They think, you know, I love winning or I hate losing. And he said, no, I just, I love the challenge. Like, I don't particularly like losing. And of course, I really <laughs> enjoy winning. But in terms of what I love about tennis, it's the challenge. And, and you can see that in him. And it's actually very difficult to, to get that. And maybe that's something that just comes to him naturally. It's very tough to train that into somebody um, because winning and losing is so hugely important to the life of a tennis player. But you, you can figure it out. People have beaten him people have beaten him when he's played well um but it's not been on clay um and it's been when he's been playing well and he's been beaten it's been because somebody's blitzed him and they've just absolutely just you know teed off nailed it and there was nothing that he could do um and that you've got to be on a faster surface for that um you know on the clay court i mean he is so far back you just 
I mean, outmaneuvering him just isn't an option. Now, outmaneuvering is probably the number one game plan for most players. That's what you do. You work the ball around the court until you get a space, then you step into the court, take the time away, and hit that space. And you hit through that space with either power to make sure you get it past your opponent, or by taking the time away, or with incredible accuracy. Those are your three options. You don't get a space against Nadal because he's seven meters behind the baseline, and he can chase anything down. So. You can't outmaneuver the guy. So your other option is to punch holes through him. Now, there are only a few players that can do that. We've seen, as I say, Nick Kyrgios do it, but on a faster surface because the court is helping the Dahl. He is slowing down the punches, the people that want to drive through the back of the ball with power. And, you know, and, and then you get to the next, you're running out of options. I mean, what other options do you have? As I say, you've got the serve volley, you know, you can't just outlast him because he's the most physical. He's the fittest guy out there. That's not an option either. And you're coming down to, to, to such small, that just really aren't any options. And they're options that players, that they don't play like that normally. So to execute that enough, to even get a set off him is almost impossible. Um, you know, you will get opportunities to turn it into a competitive match. Uh, it's, it's normally an exhibition. You know, people come to watch Nadal beat somebody and, you know, and a lot of the time the people, the crowd aren't particularly concerned with who he's beating, just that he's doing it and doing it pretty comfortably. Um, you know, and it is a Nadal exhibition, it, but I think any player of a good level will get an opportunity to turn it into a match. But if you miss that opportunity, you're done and dusted and you're off the court pretty sharpish. And if you can turn it into a match like Clijan did in that second set, you took it to 7-5, to doesn't mean you're going to win. It means you have a very, very small chance of actually competing with the guy. Gosh, I feel like we've all lost hope now. Not that in the near future, <laughs> Naomi and I are going to be taking to the court to take him on. And the other thing that came up from Monte Carlo was the underarm serve. Now, it became a debate for people saying that it's right or it's wrong and you shouldn't do it and you shouldn't do it. Even if you did do it, you're not going to beat Nadal by underarm serving for the whole contest because you might win two or three points, but it's not going to do. And you might be able to pull off a few drop shots and he's sat with the line judges at the back of the court. But even mixing things up like that, surely you're not going to be able to do anything like that enough to do what you need to do because mentally he grinds. You know, how many times have we seen players fight, fight, fight for the first set, maybe even go a break up. They lose the first set and you see them sitting at their chair thinking you've got to be are you kidding me? I've got to go through all that again at that level to probably still not win? Yeah, and, and that's what I mean by saying you, you run out of all of the, the, the most popular options of how to play tennis and you get down to the point of underarm surfing <laughs> and drop shots. And you know what? If you can, net cords, maybe try and hit as many net cords as you can. And, and that's, that's the level that we're actually talking about. And, and look, it, it will win you a point here or there, but you've got to win 48 to, to win the match. And you've got to win 48 before they win 48 when that person happens to be Nadal. You know, look, it is, a, it is a horrendously daunting prospect, but there's no point in sitting here and saying, yeah, you know, they could definitely all, if they just hit to the backhand and, you know, you know, maybe go two cross one line, you know, it's just, it's not like that. I mean, he is just a complete wall. You cannot create a hole and you won't get unforced errors. Now, almost all tennis matches are based on those things. You know, if, if you lose a match, you either lose a match by giving up position or you're forced to give up position or you lose a match by giving up unforced errors or you're forced into errors. Those are, the, those are your options. Now, neither of those options is available to anyone playing against Nadal on clay. 
The King of Clay, 46 straight sets. And uh, well done, Martin Kleijan, because he managed to actually take five games off a set, in a set against Nadal, something that no one else has done in those 46 sets. I do want to speak about Stefanos Tsitsipas, because he is 19 years of age. His goals at the start of the year were to reach the next-gen finals. He's currently second in the race to Sasha Zverev. This was his first ATP Tour-level final. And maybe not the final today because we didn't see the best or anywhere near the best of the Greek player. But but a word, he beat four of the top 10 seeds here. He did not drop a set until he came up against Nadal. Some of the names, Jäger Schwartzman, Abe Ramos-Rinles, Dominic Team, Pablo Carreno-Busta. This from a young man who coming into this year had not won a tour-level match on clay. Yeah, he's absolutely flying. He, he really is. Um, he'll be a name that we'll see around a lot. He's a fantastic talent. Um, I think we've, we've known that for some time, actually. It's been a couple of years, actually, since uh, people have been really talking about him. Maybe he was about 16, 17 years old. Um, and it, it's all been about reining it in for Tsitsipas. You know, he's had the flair, the flamboyance, he's had the attitude, he's had the confidence to deliver. He's such a shot maker. We've seen it through the week. And it's all been about just, just reining it in, decision making. Um, and that's been that's what has been key for him. And he's been much more consistent uh, so far this year. That's why his rankings shot up. He started the year at 91. He's now going to be up into the, the top 50. He's ranked 200, outside 200 this time last year. I mean, it's been an, uh, you know, a huge rise. Um, not unexpected at all for anyone really who's seen him play I think you know he was a top junior and everybody very much expecting him to be in the top 20 pretty soon um, I think probably by the end of the year I would imagine him being around the 20 mark um, I think that'd be a really good effort for him um, great game to watch single-handed backhand as I say can make uh, a lot of shots and uh, he's getting there he's got to put in a lot of work though that's uh, that's the side and he's you know if he could just nab one percent of Rafa Nadal and uh, inject into his game I mean I mean it would have been great to have been able to see what he really could have put up against Nadal it was a combination of I think he's just pretty toast at the end of this week I mean it's been a, a mammoth effort from him he's never played at this level before yep. and actually to play against Nadal in the final, he needed to find a new level just to compete. And he just couldn't do it. He didn't have enough in him. He just didn't have enough gas. Um, so that's a bit of a shame because it's a big opportunity for him. Um, you know, and I think he'll be frustrated with that as well. But he's, uh, yeah, he's a fantastic player. And, and the next gen, you know, they are coming. They are coming. I think that we it need like to... like a science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sure. Well, I think just we need to manage expectations just ever so slightly. So they're not here. They're coming. We're, they're not... Yeah they're, yeah, they're not here. Yeah. Sasha's very, he's here. Can we put him in the, he's he's arrived or is he still coming? Yeah, no, he's arrived. He's I'll arrived. give you that one. <laughs> I'll give you that one. I, you know, look, you know, Federer and Nadal are still the, the best players in the world uh, in their 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't think we can expect them to achieve the level that we've seen from Federer and Nadal or, or just what they've achieved in tennis. It's just completely extraordinary I don't think it would be unreasonable to you know be looking at them uh, you know in, in terms of the quality of tennis that we're going to see because we are going to lose a lot of the big players I think all in, in a very short space of time they are very similar ages um, I, I think uh, yeah if we could uh, if they could maybe produce the level of tennis we've seen from the likes of Andy Murray or Stan Wawrinka Del Potro Chilich, those Grand Slam winners um, I think that is where we need to set our expectations. Anything more than that, I mean, we've got to just, you know, be really happy with. But uh, that's what they've got to be looking at because uh, I think I'd even put Djokovic in a bracket of um, 
when you've got other players of such a high level, it's much easier to drag your level up and to improve because you've got that to, to pin yourself against. So, um, and, and they're not necessarily going to have that. Now, you touched on Novak Djokovic there, and we've given a nod to Martin Klijan for taking five games off a set in Nadal. He'll also be very happy, Klijan, because he defeated Novak Djokovic in round two. And, and here for you is what Djokovic had to say following his exit from Barcelona. Definitely, I, I always expect high from myself as well. But, you know, I, I wasn't to be. I didn't, didn't play at my level. I only played at my level in the second set. After, you know, the first and third were not that great. And, uh, yeah, tough to, uh, you know, deal with this kind of uh, loss and matches. You know, I'm trying to get the rhythm and I want to have more matches. But, uh, you know, unfortunately... Uh, that sport, you know, you, you can't play always as you want, as you wish. But uh, try to, I'll try to keep on going and see where it takes me. No, like it's just a question of lack of confidence, or even physically, you don't feel hundred percent as usual. Well, I mean, it's a combination of things. I mean, obviously, you know, you you, you can work very hard on the practice courts, but when you get it in a match, it's completely different. I mean, I haven't had too many matches in the last 12 months so it's um, yeah it's a lack of that match play lack of these kind of situations and look you know I, I did make uh, some changes I had to uh, when I when I was injured and uh, after the surgery as well uh, you know this this kind of uh, minor changes you know affect the the whole game and but look you know I'm, I'm trying to find a way uh, for me on the court to play the best that I can play. Uh, as I said, it's always it's not always possible to really deliver what you have intended. Um, I, I'm going to have to be patient, I guess, and 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 uh, work hard and hoping that uh, my my level will get higher. Novak Djokovic speaking after his second round exit at the hands of Martin Klijan. Where Naomi Kevaday are you sitting at the moment? with Novak Djokovic and his comeback and his form and how he's looking in general? Well, I think the jury's out, really. I think um, he's clearly trying very hard. He seems very motivated to really get back to business. But, um, you know, look, it's not quite coming together. He had a huge amount of time out and he hasn't really had that before. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to, to come back and, um, you know, his confidence is obviously going to be down. There are other things that, that come into play. Um, but I think remains to be seen. I think by the end of the year, I know that seems like a long time, but, you know, he had most of last year out. Um, by the end of the season, when we get through to about October, November, then we'll have a good idea as to what we're going to see from Djokovic. But this year is, is not a... For me, this year is not a year for him to win slams or titles. I tipped him to all. win Wimbledon in our time well, capsule. Don't be saying this to me now. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's not. This is a year for him to get back... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you're wrong. Uh, you know, this is a year for him to get back playing, to get back loving the sport, to be... You know, get back on his own little mission, find his motivation, because, you know, he doesn't have the motivation that Federer and Nadal have, because he doesn't doesn't have records sitting around the corner everywhere because they've snatched them all up. They're, they're quite far away, actually. He'd need to win very consistently for a good few years to really catch them up when it comes to slam wins or or consecutive matches or weeks at number one or, or whatever it may be. So um, he needs to find his motivation. And I think he'll spend this year doing that. So I think, 
you know, I think it's 50-50. I think there's a 50% chance next year he'll be he'll be ready to go and 50% he'll still be struggling. He's back with Marion Vida all for the clay court season. They're going to assess at the end because he made that big decision to split with his entire coaching team and everyone sort of sort of gasped and thought, what are you doing? Marion Vida's been such a, an important player. He's always been the consistently ever-present. They were working together before Monte Carlo, lost to Dominic team in Monte Carlo, Martin Clijan, as we've touched on here. And they will reassess at the end of that. But I think that's so interesting what you say about rediscovering that love and that passion because everyone it just felt like after his own record was winning the French Open Roland Garros and, and getting those Grand Slams all the trophies in the trophy cabinet that everything that had gone into that just seeped out of him and you see the likes of Andy Murray undergone hip surgery but you can you can see the passion and you can feel the passion and you can hear the passion from Andy Murray and you know he'll give it everything he can but for Novak Djokovic it's like he's lost something and the question is you said there can he how does he rediscover it? Well, I think that it's quite a normal thing, to be honest. I think within within tennis, we have very long season. It's very it's relentless. You know, it's it's a rolling ranking. You know, there's there's no let up when you're at the top of the game. I mean, there's just no let up for somebody like Djokovic, and and I think to it have the expectations that motivation is not going to go up and down and fluctuate um you know i think is is probably unreasonable i think you know he had a had a dip it coincided with some injuries which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing i think it's you know sometimes having forced time out can be a good thing because otherwise you wouldn't have any time out um and it, it is just a case of if he can rediscover that love i mean he it, it seems like it's growing in him but um as I say, it is. It does have a different feel to, to somebody like an anti who's clearly absolutely devastated at his situation that he's not been able to complete. Um, you know, you, can, you can, can feel his heart breaking <laughs> over the situation. Um, and, uh, I mean, as I say, I mean, look, jury's still out with, with Djokovic for me to see, you know, what he's going to bring. It would be great to see him back. I mean, somebody's got to win something other than Federer and Nadal, <laughs> surely. Um you know, I mean, how many slams in a row are we going to go with with Federer and Nadal as as the winners? Who knows? But um, you know, of course, if Djokovic finds that motivation again, then he, he can absolutely challenge and, and win the Grand Slams again. But I just don't think this year. I feel like we could go through the top ten, but it might be sort of the longest podcast ever because you listen to the <laughs> ATP Tennis Radio podcast with Naomi Cavaday and Gigi Salmon. And just to let you know, remind you at this point that we've got the Madrid and Rome Masters to come. You're going to have every day of those live commentary with the team and we we cannot wait for that but I also want to say this isn't the end of the podcast no we're not going through the top 10 in detail but we've spoken about Nadal and how no one can get near him on clay he's invincible he is and rightly so the king of clay and then we sort of switched it looked at Djokovic and a little bit of that aura has gone and he had the injuries now people know they can go out on court and they can beat Novak Djokovic so we thought you'd be interested in in, in listening into what coach Dave Samuel who's currently working with Liam Brody who's worked with a host of British players throughout the years, had to say he's written a book called Locker Room Power, and he spoke to Seb Lozier in Miami. Over the years, uh, it, it kind of developed in my mind, you know, what is it that causes certain players to win so consistently? And and it doesn't matter what the level is. And and it, they started carrying aura about them, and, and I... I've named it Locker Room Power and, and I used it with uh, Barry Cowan, Arvin Palmer and, 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 and Richardson, Miles McLagan guys who I've coached uh, prior uh, and used to say to them that you know the way you carry yourself around a tournament, uh, the way you practice, uh, everything that you do, if it's 
if people feel like you're on a mission, then they start to take notice and your locker room power grows. And obviously, you know, the, the secret ingredient to locker room power at the end of the day is results. You know, you, you can do everything well and, and, and you know, and, and show people that you're you know, very focused and on a mission. But at some point you do have to get some results so that the fear factor grows. So, you know, locker room power is about how you conduct yourself and also, you know, the, the, the tools which are in the book that teach you uh, how you can, you know, build the foundation that can allow you to win mentally and then obviously the locker room power grows. So a guy like Sasha Zverev, for example, good locker room power? Yes, I mean, he, you know, the players that come on the scene and break through so fast like that, you know, you, you know they, they're kind of phenoms uh, and they have an enormous self-belief in themselves from a very young age. You know, I remember watching Andy Murray when he was young and, he, you know, the belief that he had that he was just better than most players was, you know, uh, quite extraordinary and, and they have tremendous skills as well. So very quickly as, as juniors, they build a lot of locker room power and, and, you know, most players fear them and they come onto the tour and, and, and feel kind of the same way about most players and and mentally that that definitely gives them an edge because they're they're not afraid but of course you know uh you know currently he has his struggles as well and i always say it's you know it's the same stuff at a different level and and you know you don't create that fear you know amongst you know players like roger federer without actually being good enough and 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 learning your your and your trade and getting to a place where you know you can uh, you know match those in every arena because obviously he's had wins at, at you know over over the best in the world, but ultimately the sport again results it comes down to how you do in Masters and and which he, you know he's done well in and then the Grand Slams, so you know every every player has their struggles at every level to create that aura of invincibility and we've seen players you know like Djokovic and Fedra and Murray and they have those periods where they absolutely seem Nadal you know uh, invincible. Incredibly interesting David you mentioned Arvin Palmer, Barry Cowan and Miles McLagan all of whom work with us on ATP Tennis Radio. I've got to ask you good students, bad students, good protégés, bad protégés? They did extremely well I think they they worked hard um, I think you know, like like everybody, they all had their own demons, but that's the same with every player. And you have to learn how to manage those things. And you know, I think you know, if if maybe you know they'd managed those things uh, a little bit better, they might have done even better. But I will also say this: that had I known then when I coached them what I know now. Uh, they probably also would have done better as well because you know you, you go through life hopefully getting better all the time and I hate to think in five years time I'm not a better coach than I am now and it's you know it is kind of horrible to think back and think you know what if I had known what I know now working with them but I can think back even further to the first couple of girls I coached on tour and and I'm a little bit horrified at at at, at 
at how I, I operated. I mean, I, with all the best intentions, but this is life. You know, you get experience and you get better, and uh, and that you know helps players, you know, more and more. Uh, so, but I mean, they they were hardworking guys who did damn well, you know. And when people reach 120 or 180 in the world or 150 in the world, I mean, you know, it's 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 scary to think about what the levels are, and and the margins are very small. Which showed when, you know, Miles almost beat uh, uh, Boris Becker. He had match points. You know, Barry had that famous match against Sampras over five sets. Uh, you know, I, I saw Arvin be a, uh, you know one set all on a breakup against Pat Rafter. So you know, and and you know they all had some good wins as well as as these almost beating great players. So the margins are not as big as people think. I think the biggest difference is the the very best players in the world have just a phenomenal consistency of the level that they can put on the court. I know you've written another book as well about geared towards parents, which is a book, I guess, extremely pertinent to tennis. Um, I was talking with Nick Bollicieri earlier in the week and asking him what sort of 10-year-old or 12-year-old he wants to see, and he made it very clear that it's a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old whose parents are not going to be heaping loads of pressure on them to win straight away. I mean, is that something that you'd you'd agree with? Yes. I think, it, you know... You hear this, and it's a cliche that it's all about the process, but it is all about the process of getting better. However, I will say this: is you cannot have a kid that's playing and has no pressure and and doesn't win at all, because then there's something missing there. You know, I think I think you know, and 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 what I write there is that you know you you kind of as a kid want to have a a three to one, two to one win to loss ratio. If you're starting getting, you know, six, seven wins to one, you're either looking like a phenom or you're playing the wrong level. Get up a level where you're not winning that much. But the same thing if you if you if you're one and five all the time, you need to come down a level and get get some confidence and, and win as well. So you know a two to three to one ratio ratio to to keep getting better uh, but also keeping the confidence that of, of a winner uh, overall so uh, but yes I mean he's 100% correct it is mostly about the process but you know it, there are parents who've been you know absolutely pressure mad and everything like that who've created some you know great players and and it's whether they can handle that that pressure or not because ultimately at some stage in tennis you do have to handle pressure uh, it's helpful if the parents are very supportive and you know if they don't know a lot about tennis get a good coach and let him do his job you know and, and sometimes they find that very very difficult uh, and it's not about winning all the time. That was coach Dave Samuel, author of Locker Room Power, together with his coaching duty, speaking to Seb. Thank you so much for being with us. That is it for another week of the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, then we would love you and please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. Now, three 250 tournaments next week or this week, whenever you're listening to us, Estoril, Munich and Istanbul. You can keep up to date via atpworldtour.com and then don't forget your live 
live commentary returns. ATP Tennis Radio never goes away. It's your behind-the-scenes pass, your access all areas pass to life on ATP World Tour. But for live commentary, we've got the back-to-back -back Masters competitions that will set us up nicely for Roland Garros, starting with Madrid, where Rafa Nadal, once again, will be defending the title. Until next time, take care of yourselves.